Good morning again. Oh man, I need to practice that. You guys have gotten rusty. Good morning again. I hate it when preachers do that. <laughs> it is great to be back with you. I had a really wonderful couple months off. Uh, lots of rest and stillness, lots of play, uh, kid transportation. And I'll share a few more highlights later in the service. Uh, as I return, I'm very grateful for our community and especially for all those who pitched in in my time away. Too many to name right here. I'm also doing a lot of thinking about what comes next, right, in our church, for our church in particular, and also the church in general. My mind always goes to big picture as well as us. You might be aware of the fact that the state of the Christian church in the U.S., especially the parts shaped by the majority culture, is changing rapidly. Some people stopped attending church during COVID and just didn't go back. The latest Pew study showed nearly a third of those raised Christian eventually switched to none or nothing in particular, a third, while only about 20% of those raised without religion become Christian. So numbers, not looking so good. Many who were raised in the church, faithful Christians, are deconstructing their faith for various reasons, not least of which is the appalling response or lack thereof of so many churches when confronted with serious matters such as race, politics, abuse in the church. So if you think about numbers, the forecast is looking a bit bleak. So that's the church. And at the same time, the problems outside the church haven't exactly gone away. I did not do much news reading during my time off. I didn't need to, to know it's not good out there. Crisis after crisis, there's overwhelming human need. I don't know if you've noticed, at least in my neck of the woods, where people are asking for money, the signs have changed from veterans or COVID to refugees with families literally there on the side of the road. Whew, it's overwhelming. Then there's the overwhelming human evil, and that's just in our politicians. So as I step back into the saddle this week, when I think about all of that, as we think about what, God, what does God have for us at Redeemer, near future and in years to come, as we look at this big picture, we might be tempted to look at all of that and throw up our hands and just go, ah! <laughs> That's a prayer in its own, right? Well, I know it's a strange thing to come back from break and start with the doom and the gloom, right? Our gospel passage this morning nudges us towards a different way to respond. A different way than, ah! A way to respond in faith rather than panic or despair. A way that looks like Jesus. Fancy that. So let's take a look at Matthew 14. This passage, as you might know, is one of the few passages that are in all four Gospels. Matthew and Mark also have an extra feeding of the 4,000 passage. So in other words, this is an important story. Each version has its own particularities. For example, in Matthew, we see Jesus spending the time throughout the day healing. In Mark, Jesus is teaching. And in Luke, he's doing both a good reminder of Jesus's holistic ministry. This is a famous passage, of course, but let's see if we can hear it afresh today. Verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, wait a second, what happened? Before we go on, we'd better go back. First part of chapter 13 is this vivid, awful description. You can turn to it if you are 
interested, now that I've said it's vivid and awful, uh, of how Herod killed John the Baptist. That's what comes immediately before this. It's this account where there's a big feast. Herod's niece, who tradition names Salome, is dancing for him and his guests. Probably we're not talking all that clean dancing, right? Herod likes it so much he offers her a favor in front of all his guests, whatever you want. And her mother, who's Herod's now wife and had been the wife of his brother, that's what got John Landon in prison. This is like a soap opera, guys. The Bible has soap operas in it. Anyway, her mom says, you know what? Ask for John's head on a platter. And this little girl, this girl, asks for that in front of all the guests. And Herod feels the pressure, so he does it. John's head is brought in on a platter. John is executed. John's disciples bury him, and then they go tell Jesus what happened. That's the context for verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, that Herod had killed John, in this way. No wonder Jesus retreats for some time alone. Maybe he wants to get a little further from Herod. Certainly he wants to grieve. You have to think maybe his own death is on his mind, not so far away at the hands of the state. Jesus has been brought face to face once again with the human evil empire. It makes sense to take a minute. But of course, his reasonable plan gets derailed because the crowds follow him on foot along the lake. That had to be a real feat. Someone keeping track of the boat, other people, they have 5,000 by the time they arrive. Man, some were probably just there for the spectacle, right, along for the ride. Some had their own illnesses to be healed. Some probably carrying others who weren't so mobile. Then children having to accompany their parents. This is a real mixed group that arrives here. There will be no rest for Jesus today. He withdraws in order to grieve overwhelming human evil, only to be confronted face-to-face with overwhelming human need. Well, that feels familiar. The two big types of suffering all humans confront in this life, suffering because of the human condition, sickness, disease, natural disaster, and suffering because of human evil. Both are constants for us, for everyone we meet, for all humans throughout time. Both form the fabric, the background of this passage. So what follows the story that the gospelers desperately want us to remember, what follows is in many ways Jesus' response when face-to-face with overwhelming human need and overwhelming human evil. But there's just one thing that jumped out to me this week. A hungry group of people at the end of the day is not a crisis situation. No one was going to die that night, I don't think, without this food. Jesus did not have to perform this miracle to save everyone who's there. He's not saving lives. He could have released them to go home. They probably had been hungry for a few nights before, right? They'd been hungry before. They could have dealt with it one more night. So why now, Jesus? Why this miracle at this time? It's not just about meeting needs. This is not a miracle that just shows how many needs that Jesus can meet. Something else is going on. And I think the key is in verses 15 and 16. The disciples speak up. Jesus, it's late. We're hungry. Jesus responds, we don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat. I loved, I heard some responses to that today. We should, that's exactly how we should respond. You give them something to eat. Um, Jesus, 
Look at the size of this crowd. We have this many foods. That is so what ministry feels like sometimes, and just life in general. This many needs and this many foods. That is not enough, Jesus. I barely have enough for me. You can imagine the disciples being like, I'm kind of hungry too. I was kind of hoping to eat this. There's too many needs. It's too big. What is the point? I am not enough for this. Jesus, we don't have enough people to staff our ministries. Jesus, we are too tired to do one more thing. Jesus, the plumbing costs keep adding up. They're blowing our budget. We're stretched too thin. How are we supposed to feed the desperate, hungry crowd, much less resist the evils of empire? We are not enough. And to that, Jesus says, you're right. You're not. But I am. Jesus performs this miracle not just to feed the hungry people, but to teach his disciples something essential to life in the Spirit, something essential to who Jesus is, to who God is. Jesus is teaching his disciples and us that Jesus is enough and more than enough for everything they face. And that's true for us, too. When we are faced, as we are each day, by overwhelming human evil and overwhelming human need, and even by the failures of the church, how can we respond as faith-filled disciples of Jesus? Our passages nudge us towards three bite-sized responses. First, cultivate compassion for others and for yourself. Jesus enters this passage tired, grieving, trying to be alone. Yet when he lands and sees all these people hurting, desperate, clamoring, he doesn't run away to find a new spot. He doesn't yell at them, leave me alone, or blame them or shame them. He doesn't despair. He doesn't put it off on someone else. He responds with compassion. God always responds to human need with compassion. It is part of who God is. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Compassion is this gut-level response that Jesus has multiple times in this gospel. Usually he has this gut-level response and then does something to alleviate the thing that gave him that response. We know this, of course, Jesus has compassion. But if we are honest, compassion is not always our response to human need. Imagine that we leave the church building today And outside is a crowd of what we might call panhandlers. Imagine there's maybe people missing teeth, people who smell, some talking to themselves, clearly mentally ill, maybe some tents are set up on the lawn, some missing limbs, some with little kids, maybe a dog that looks kind of mangy. All of them are out there wanting something from you when we leave today, from me. Compassion might not be our first response might be mixed in there, but there's lots of other emotions that might bring up, right? Fear, guilt, Uh, I've got $5, I don't want to give it. Anger, why are these people here? Despair, oh, it's too much. Contempt, ugh. Oh, and by the way, all those emotions, sometimes that's exactly how we react to our own need too. 
Whether or not we can meet the need we see, say we enter into that crowd, we can cultivate compassion by the Spirit, that gut-level response to need, to messiness out there and in us. Part of how we cultivate compassion is that we follow Jesus' example of also taking time away. Even though he doesn't get that time at the beginning of this day, the follow-up to our passage is that once he's fed the people, he has the disciples send the crowd away, and he goes off on his own. If we are always seeking to meet the needs out there that are endless, while not giving compassion and care to ourselves, that is actually not compassion. That is codependency. It will burn us out. Codependency. Sorry, I whispered that. That's codependency, not compassion. It will burn us out, and it buys into the lie that somehow we are supposed to be enough on our own. We are not. Only Jesus is. Remember, you're a disciple, and you're kind of part of the crowd, too. Jesus wants to tend to your needs, too. The more true compassion we learn to offer ourselves, the more we can actually offer to others. So, in the face of overwhelming human need, overwhelming human evil, responding like a disciple of Jesus means nurturing, keeping in touch with compassion, both for others and for ourselves. Second, we offer what we have, not what we don't have right? Makes sense when you say it. But sometimes it feels like that's what Jesus wants. Well, Peter, I'm disappointed. I was really expecting you to find at least 20 loaves. No. It sounds silly when we put it that way. And yet sometimes I feel like that's what Jesus is wanting from me, more than I actually have. He doesn't ask the disciples to come up with a feast, and nor do the disciples tell him they don't have anything at all, right? That could have been their response. I don't have, we don't have anything, Jesus not thinking that the five and the two little guys count. He says, you give them something to eat. Well, this is all we got. Okay, bring that to me. Jesus is not sitting around wringing his hands over our offerings and our budget. He is more aware than we are of our limitations. And he's also more aware of how he can multiply the little that we bring. We are not enough to meet the needs of the world, but what we bring is more than enough for Jesus to work with. We offer what we have. Not only does Jesus multiply that little bit the disciples give him, he empowers them to be the face of the miracle. Do you think about this? They are the ones that go distribute the food. They are the face of it to the cro so many in the crowd. And the food doesn't multiply until they begin to distribute it until they give it away. I wonder what would have happened if they'd kept some. Won't miss a loaf right here, but they didn't. They gave it, and look what happened. When resources feel scarce, it is so natural to want to cling to them more tightly. It is a fundamental human need to be safe and fed, to survive. But what Scripture teaches us over and over is that the second we start clinging, the second we slip one of those loaves in our pocket for later, that's the very second we close ourselves off from experiencing the abundance of the Lord. The one who loves their life, clings to their life, will lose it. The one who loses their life for my sake and for the kingdom will gain it. I've alluded to the plumbing and the budget, right? 
we face this temptation here a bit right now, I think. We're doing okay. We're doing okay. But we got a lot of plumbing costs. What do we do with that? We face that temptation to start to focus on what we don't have, what we might not have, to fear we won't have enough, and then what? We've got this building, right? We face the temptation to self-protect and to cling as a community. Maybe some of you experience that in your own lives right now, financially or otherwise. Jesus says, offer me what you have with open hands. Just give it to me. I will make it enough. The disciples had to give that food over to Jesus, not knowing what he would do with it or whether they would get any of it back. And they end up with full bellies, and each disciple with a basket full of food, everyone was too full to eat. Like Jesus saying, see? See? As we, individually and corporately, are faithful to offer Jesus just what we have, maybe seven loaves, two fish, maybe more, maybe less, he will be faithful to use it towards what he wants to do. Abundant blessing for us and for those we love and serve. So in the face of overwhelming human evil, overwhelming human need, responding like a disciple of Jesus means we offer to Jesus simply what we have. And third, in the face of overwhelming human evil and overwhelming human need, responding like Jesus means cultivating countercultural kingdom community. I said it was going to be bite-sized. I'm not sure about this one. Cultivating countercultural kingdom community. Cultivating community. Think of the contrast for a second between the Feast of Herod that we read about right before our passage and this feast that Jesus offers. Herod offers this abundance of rich food and drink and peeled grapes, who knows, to powerful and influential guests. Jesus offers a super abundance of everyday foods to ordinary people. Herod's feast is debauched, ends with a celebration of death, Jesus' feast is surrounded by his kingdom teaching, holistic, him making people whole again. Herod's feast, typical for his status and culture. I mean, this is Game of Thrones stuff. I haven't seen it. That's what I'm guessing. Jesus' feast is transcendent, takes us backwards to the manna and the wilderness, forwards to the messianic feast all God's people will enjoy when Jesus comes again. This is big stuff. Herod is waited on hand and foot. Jesus becomes the host for the meal. He is the one sharing food, offering hospitality. And sharing a meal like this, this language of taking bread, blessing it, breaking it, giving it, this feast becomes a picture of the new community of faith that Jesus gathers around himself. Total opposite to the culture of empire. Total opposite to Herod's feast. This is a countercultural community that Jesus is forming, a community in which people of all ages and reputations are gathered on the grass, sitting on the grass, welcomed as equals, hosted by Jesus himself. That is Jesus' response to the evils of empire. Many have given up or are close to giving up on church today, and there are valid reasons for that. Remember, cultivate compassion. For me, 
the biggest reason I cannot give up on church. Big C Church, as well as local Redeemer Church, is this third point. Because I believe that the church, as Jesus intended it to be, the vision of this countercultural community, as scripture paints it to be, is exactly what this world is missing. Exactly God's answer to overwhelming need and overwhelming evil and even empire, that the church is intended to be a picture, a community that actually lives out what the kingdom is like here and now, that points beyond itself to what God intends for humanity, a foretaste of glory divine. I can see it. I can see it. People are leaving the church for the most part because so many churches have failed to live as that. But we are still here. We can't fix all the stuff out there, but we have a community to steward here. There's time, there's grace, there's loaves and fishes. My hope for us, if I have a big dream for Redeemer, this is it, is quite simply that we can grow towards that, that community, that countercultural kingdom community. I happen to believe, a dreamer that I am, that that sort of community will actually speak to the true needs of the world, physical needs, as well as the chronic soul needs for identity and meaning and connection. I mentioned that, you know, there's two big kinds of suffering. Some actually think now there's a third that, that all humans in our culture are experiencing. Um, and it's a nebulous thing, but it's tied to having to experience um, the, you know, human condition, right? Death, suffering, all that, and human evil without meaning or narrative or community to help you bear it. I think that probably resonates when we think about it. I was reflecting this morning on, you know, I've, had, I've talked a lot with, with um, those who, like me, have given birth not too long ago. And there's a reason that people used to do this in community. <laughs> and now that we're isolated, it's much harder. So I think there's this sort of chronic, there's this chronic anxiety. Well, I think the church actually has answers to that too. Because we have meaning. We have a story. We have a purpose. All of those big picture things, I think people can find it here if we live as who we are meant to be. So I joked that this last point might feel a little bigger than bite-sized. But the good news is, Jesus is the one who builds that kind of community. As we nurture compassion for ourselves, for others, as we bring what we have, as we look to him, as we are a place in which bread is broken, offered, taken, eaten, received. Jesus will do the rest. Jesus is never overwhelmed. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.